Everybody nice and chilled out now? Yeah, you should be. Thank you so much, Mary. That was just lovely. Uh, I don't know exactly what all the things mean, but they work. Uh, so thank you for doing that. I also want to thank uh, Carol Tolan. She got here extra early and made our space look all the more beautiful with all this Hawaiian uh, kind of stuff. So thank you, Carol. You're somewhere around here. And I know we have a, a food team, too, that is creating lunch for us. Oh, there's Carol. Uh, food team has got amazing food for us, too. So thank you, um, Marsha and uh, Danny in particular. They're the ones who at least saw back there. Uh, so thank you for them. Yeah, thank you. So two of the guests that I uh, brought in uh, while I was gone, back-to-back, uh, -back, uh, one weekend was a friend of mine, a rabbi here in town. Uh, and then the next weekend, another friend of mine, uh, our local imam. And uh, I wanted to do that for you because how else would you get to hear them? You know what I mean? And uh, bringing them to you gave you the opportunity to be exposed to who they are as people, to hear from their own mouths uh, their worldview and how they're thinking and who they are. And to help foster that and facilitate that, I asked Gordon uh, Wagner uh, to interview them. And I got so much good feedback on how well uh, Gordon interviewed uh, those guys. And so I thought, yeah, way to go, Gordon. And so I thought it might be interesting today, rather than me just do a more classic kind of presentation to you, uh, to have Gordon interview me. Uh, so that's what you're going to get, and we'll see where it goes. And who knows, he might have a curveball to throw me. I'm ready, and uh, we'll just see where it goes. So come on up, Gordon. All right. Sure Thank you, Pete. Thank you. Um, really, I mean, the real reason I'm up here is, a, is that so I can complete my collector set of a rabbi <laughs> and a mom and a pastor, right? And so when I, when I do that joke, like a rabbi and a mom and a pastor walk into a bar, I can do it from a place of authority, right? So um, <laughs> thank you. Thank you for uh, allowing me the opportunity, man. Um, so I mean, one, of the, one of the big goals for me in doing this is, um, one, I kind of want to uh, have this serve as kind of a reintroduction of Pete, because we've actually had a lot of new faces join us over the past few months. And those of us who have been here for a long time, I've been here now for, I think, 13 years or something like that. Uh, we've heard a lot of Pete's backstory, but there are a lot of new folks who maybe haven't. So we're going to touch on that a little bit. Um, we'll touch on um, kind of Pete's bio, his ministry, um, and then kind of what this sabbatical has been like, because I think at the end of the day, these are the big kind of questions that we all have uh, for him. So mm -hmm. to start off, um, real quick, I just want to read um, the quick little bio that is on, of Pete, that is on our website. Hmm. Um, so this is what it says. Uh, Pete's first day on the job as pastor here at Crosswalk was November 1st, 1999. He was just 10 years old. <laughs> he, he earned his Bachelor of Arts in Psychology from Ottawa University in Kansas in 1992, his Master of Divinity from Northern Seminary in the Chicago area in 1995, and his Doctor of Ministry from Northern Seminary in 2006, focusing his thesis and project on soteriology. Nicely done, yeah. Nice, not nicely done. And uh, <laughs> adult transformational learning theory. Uh -huh. He and his wife, Lynn, married in 1992. They have two amazing kids, Noah and Lakin, who are now launched into their respective careers having completed their college education at Pepperdine University. Yep. Yeah, I think right. that kind of covers the basic yeah. stuff, right? Let's eat. <laughs> oh. 
Um, but one of, the, one of the things that it, uh, that it doesn't touch on that I think has definitely informed who you are and certainly who you are as a pastor is mm -hmm. you grew up a pastor's kid. Yep. And um, how, did, how did that influence you growing up? Mm -hmm. How does it influence you as a pastor now? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and what was it like to receive the call, as they yeah. call it? Yeah, well, um, I, I think first, I think it's a great idea. I didn't know we were going to do some of the earlier story stuff, but I, I think that's good because then people who want to know who this clown is, they can, they can just watch and now <laughs> they know. So growing up a pastor's kid, um, my dad's ministry my first part of my life, uh, he was the pastor of the church that I attended until I was eight years old, and then we moved. And uh, Dad had a successful ministry wherever he went. Uh, it was a positive experience. Uh, sometimes pastors' kids have really horrible uh, relationship with the church because the relationship with their pastor parent and the church wasn't healthy or it was filled with conflict and turmoil and all that. That was not my experience. So I had a good relationship and good um, idea of the church, uh, good feelings about the church on the whole. The church loved us uh, as a family, um, and it was, it was really great. And my dad was a college president for about five years, a job that I think he hated, honestly. <laughs> I think he got into it, and it wasn't what he thought it might be, and five years later he became an executive minister in Michigan, which is kind of like a bishop, so an overseer of all of our sister pastors in our tribe in the state of Michigan. And um, so my, I didn't have to deal with some of the normal pastor's kid stuff, because usually there's even a book called The Stained Glass Fishbowl, uh, and the idea behind it is that a pastor's family is on constant display. Uh, even if people don't know they're doing it, it's, it's always happening, and there's always something else in the air. Uh, my wife can definitely speak to this, um, but we'll get into this a little bit, but my experience here, even though the journey here has been challenging at times, and the first few years were especially challenging, but there were also other major milestone shifts that we made along the way that were very stressful. One beautiful thing is, is that this church has always loved my family. Uh, even if they kind of hated me. <laughs> and my kids know that. And so my kids' association uh, with church is very positive because of you. And they have such fond memories of this space. And there's nothing in them that doesn't want to be here when they're home. You know what I mean? So that's, you don't know what a gift that is. Because for pastor's kids, that is, that is not that common. So... So anyway, that, that kind of, being a pastor's kid also informed how I think about being a person and a pastor. My dad is very gregarious. Um, you know, like I said, he was, he was respected and well-liked by most of the people that he was leading. And so I learned a lot from him. Uh, probably could learn some things better, but that helped. And, and what was it like? What was, what was it like when you like, received the call or when you, when you made mm -hmm. the decision that this was what you wanted to do? Mm -hmm. was, was it like, did you feel pressure because your dad had done it? Or mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, no, no pressure whatsoever. My dad, was a grandf my, my dad was a pastor. Both of my grandfathers also pastors, all in the same Baptist tradition. And you would think there would be this natural kind of push 
And they never did that. And when I, I, I really sensed a, it was a spiritual experience for me uh, in high school. My, it was the summer before my sophomore year in high school. And I was at church camp. Uh, and it was just a chapel service. And the camp counselor guy, whoever was talking, the director, he just said, hey, maybe some of you, maybe God is calling some of you uh, into greater service. And I took that and really experienced a God thing at that moment um, as a call to become a pastor someday. And um, in retrospect, I probably should have wondered why my parents never encouraged me to become a pastor. Because <laughs> maybe they saw things in me that were like, oh, that's just not a great fit, Peter. But, you know, we'll give it a shot anyway, I guess, if God called you. So that was my call experience, and uh, that has been uh, very important as part of my, my whole journey. I'm not alone in it. Right. Um, so in, you, you come to Napa in 99, mm -hmm. and you, they're, like, given, given the trajectory of your career up until that point, mm -hmm. you, the move to Napa, like, had a specific purpose behind it, right? Like, there was... For sure. You, there was, like, a mission that you were trying to accomplish in that move. Yeah. And what, what was the nature of that mission? Like, because I don't think a lot of people may not know this history, and it's an yeah. important one, I think. Uh, in the late 90s, uh, the church was in a really tough spot. It had gone through... Crosswalk uh, was. Crosswalk, First Baptist Church yeah. at that time. Still is, but we call ourselves Crosswalk. Yeah. Um, there were a couple chapters that were very difficult in the life of the church uh, that hurt our membership significantly. Um, pretty much the only people, with some exceptions, that were still here were people who had been here for many decades. Uh, the, the foundation, you know, people in the church. Some of you are still here. Uh, some of you remember uh, when, you, when you brought me in. Uh, the average age literally was 70 years old, uh, and uh, the attendance was, was in pretty tough shape. Um, some of the facilities needed some work. There was, because we'd been through like a 10, really about a 10-year period that was very, very hard on the church. Um, the church found out about me because I had had uh, very successful, in terms of air quotes, successful uh, pastor experience right out of seminary and outside of Chicago. And the church grew very quickly, and the region at that time was looking around the country for people who uh, had experience doing that and invited me in to sort of do the same thing here, to try to see what we can do to bring some life back um, uh, into the church. So as a fixer, essentially. As a fixer, yeah. yeah. That's right. No pressure. But, exactly. Uh, yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. And it was, a, it was very difficult. Um, I had an ego the size of Texas, even bigger than it is now, <laughs> and uh, came in just thinking, well, I can do this, you know, or there's just more fish to catch, you know, kind of that kind of attitude. And all we got to do is all the things that I did back in Illinois, and it'll work just fine. And it didn't work just fine. Um, because most of the churches on the West Coast were already doing the things that I knew to do uh, in this small town in Illinois. And so having the bells and whistles and changing our worship style and all that, um, that wasn't anything new or different. And frankly, it made coming to church difficult for our senior adults who didn't know the words, didn't know the songs, didn't really like it. Um, I wish there were, I would go back and do things differently. Uh, than I did, um, so I feel bad about that, uh, but it's sort of a learn and go. 
Um, so anyway, yeah, I came in to do that, and it was it was very challenging um, early experience uh, for all of us. Um, you know, I talked about this being our sabbatical. Well, it's not just my history; it's our history. And I would say the first four years that I was here um, were hell on <laughs> on everybody, uh, and we were seeing some results, but um, it was hard. It was just really, really hard, and it didn't. For my feeling of it, um, it didn't really get considerably lovely until about year seven. And it just, I don't know why. I, I had other pastor friends that told me sometimes it just takes time uh, to build kind of trust with each other. Um, and I think we'd all kind of been through the crucible. I remember one moment in particular, um, we had a leadership thing here, and we brought in an outside guest to lead our board in a, in a prayer exercise where we would lay our prayers at the altar, so to speak, in a tangible way. And that was a real shift for me uh, because I had my ideas that were largely ego-driven, I think, even w if well-meaning, uh, and I gave those up that day. I gave up whatever dream I thought this was supposed to be and become. Wow. Yeah, I was very, That's I was, sick. yeah, I was yeah. weeping uh, through that. And it was still kind of a suck fest for uh, <laughs> a couple years after that. But then some key things shifted. And um, like I said, there were, there were other major milestone things that were challenging ahead. But, but for, for me anyway, um, year seven is when things started to feel very different and more and better. Yeah. And so, so year seven is 2006. I'm sure it's no coincidence yeah. that this is around your doctorate time, yeah. too. Mm -hmm. And so there's a, there's a transition that starts to happen, an yeah. evolution that starts to happen yeah. in your approach to theology around this time. Yeah. And, it's, and it's that. So I, I started attending here in 2009, so like three yeah. years after that. Um, and so what, what is the nature of that change that you experienced theologically? What are the questions that started to bubble up? Yeah. for you that you started trying to tackle? Yeah. Well, many of you have heard this before, but um, when I moved out here, I'd already done a lot of my doctoral coursework, and I really only had my thesis and a project that goes along with it uh, to do. And so, um, honestly, the, the final piece of my doctorate <clears throat> was really asking a much bigger question than my thesis actually addressed. And the much bigger question was, do I want to stay a pastor anymore? Right. Um, because I was so fried and because the theology and the way of thinking about faith uh, and being a pastor in that, I felt like a used car salesman. And I was just like, I don't think I can do this anymore. Um, and so my doctoral work was really to ask the question, to get at that bigger question, what is this thing that God is trying to do in the world? And is it compelling enough to stick around for? And so I gave up kind of a shallowish subject matter, um, and I took on soteriology, which is the study of salvation. That's, that's what it is. And I'm asking the question, if salvation is what God's after, what is that in all of its fullness? And it's much bigger than the loudest church traditions in our world are telling you, and I've been unpacking that ever since. Well, that, that process of learning, learning things that had always been there in the Bible, in theology, that most uh, people don't know of, 
at, first of all, uh, lit me up because what God was trying to do in the world and still trying to do is incredible and redemptive and good and so compelling that it fired me up then and I'm still fired up about it. Curtis Thornton said, hey, you ought to, you ought to do a teaching series on that. And I'm like, I could easily do that because it still fires me up. Uh, it's so great uh, what God is trying to do in the world. Um, so, and then it obviously uh, gave me new, new life uh, to enter ministry in a different way. And so the first thing I did is unpack my, my thesis stuff, my doctoral work. And for many people, it was really good news as I thought it was. And for other people, it was really bad news because it was, it was shining a light on some assumptions that we've had, even some really bad translations of scripture that were very comfortable and popular. And those literally, one of the one of the sermons which I thought was just, you know, such good news, that was actually one of my least popular sermons ever in my history of just saying something, right? And I actually <laughs> lost people because I was messing with the holy cow, just helping people see it for what it actually was rather than what tradition has said that it was. So. I mean, th this for me is one of the things that I, that me personally, I, I really enjoy about uh, about coming here is that so often I think certainly in the church traditions where I grew up the, you know yes the pastor was um, I think pastor in some ways has to be in a position of authority right you're supposed to be a spiritual mm -hmm. leader but the, no the notion in churches that I attended growing up was that um, the pastor always had all the answers mm -hmm. and one of one of the things that I really enjoyed about being here is that it seems clear that you're questioning things the way I question things sometimes. Hmm. And, and it's refreshing to me to be able to look at someone and say, oh, wait, he's, tr he's going through stuff too, mm -hmm. um, and trying to figure things out, and it makes me feel less alone in that pursuit, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, so I, I think that's been, that's been cool to watch. Cool. Um, so, you know, this year, it's what, you're at 23 years here now. Almost, yeah. Um, and, you know, you have, you had this really major burnout moment yep. um, that happened, well, how long? A year ago. ago. A year yeah. ago, right. Mm -hmm. And so I kind of want to talk about um, how, how you kind of reached that point yeah. and, um, and what that was like for you. Yeah. And, and before you talk about that, real quick, can we have a quick show of hands? Is there any, who among us here today has had or is currently in a position where you've been on call, where you know what that's like. Okay, so there's, mm -hmm. th there's a handful of us. One, one, and I've, I've been in that role a little bit in my life, and one of the things I wanna say before Pete answers this is that if you're, if you're someone who is on call the way Dar is, the way Pete is, um, I think we think about people and work and we think about finite five-day, 40-hour work weeks, right? Um, and you think that, oh, you get a weekend. If you're, if you're in a role that, that is on call the way um, Dar and Pete are, even those times of weekend or Sabbath, I mean, it's Sunday for crying out loud, right? Um, even, even those times for someone who is on call, they're not fully relaxing. You can't, you can't fully unplug in that time when I was on call because there was always this thing in the back of your head uh, something might come up. I'm always worried about the thing that's going on when I'm not there. Um, 
And that, I think, starts to stack up. It certainly stacked up for me in that, in that portion of my career. So, mm -hmm. so how did, you know, what was that kind of breaking moment for you a year ago, and, and yeah. how did we? Yeah, I did a whole teaching on that. Uh, if you want to dial back into mid-April of 21 and, yeah. and hear me tell that story. But in short, um, right as COVID was coming on, I was preparing for sabbatical in the year 2020. And uh, had done an enormous amount of prep work to get that ready. Because uh, it takes a lot. It takes a lot <laughs> to get things ready. So appreciative to Dar for holding down the fort. Uh, but it takes a ton of work to, to, for a person in my role to leave for three months for it not to be a disaster. So I was doing a lot of extra work leading up to that and really needing it and really ready for it. And then COVID hit. And it was very clear to me very soon. And the board, you know, we talked about it, was that there was no way I could take uh, sabbatical um, because we didn't, there was so much we didn't know about what COVID would do. It's just, there's no way the senior leader uh, is gonna walk at that point. And so um, COVID hit and it, it just meant more, it meant about an extra day or two a week of work for me for the church uh, because we had to go all online, which meant uh, I had to pre-record everything, uh, which takes a lot of time. Um, and then I was called into a lot of community leadership uh, through the COAD. And that required literally two days of work a week for the first, I don't know, 12 weeks or so. It was unbelievable. And so, you know, the first big chunk is I needed, I needed the break anyway for what sabbatical is supposed to be. But what, what happened in that year was I just got exhausted, just flat out exhausted. And got to a place where I was numb and things that should bring me joy. Well, first, I couldn't remember what brings me joy. That's a, that's a sign. And couldn't feel anything. Um, and that's when I reached, well, first Lynn noticed, and we had conversation. And then I reached out to a therapist uh, who helped me understand what was going on. And also, in no uncertain terms, even though I wanted to hold on just a little bit longer for stupid reasons, uh, the, the therapist agreed with my wife, dang it, uh, that, uh, that that break, that taking all the vacation that I had accrued, which accumulated to a month off last year, I needed to do it now. And no waiting around, now. Yeah, this was a moment of crisis. It was. Yeah. And the board knew that. And thank God for our board uh, who recognized it and wanted health for me, health for the church, and completely blessed it. Uh, and even at the onset and toward the end, I mean, Fred was uh, chair at that time. They said, you know, we're giving you the month. If you need more than that, we want you well. Uh, so, so, and even toward the end, they're like, well, what do you think? You ready to come back? And, you know, I, because of the therapy and what I, um, what I did with that time, I was ready to come back. And Still needed the sabbatical because that's a very different thing, um, but uh, that that enabled me to get through that time uh, to get to this time. So, um, we're you know I'm I'm certainly grateful. I know you're grateful. But I think as a congregation we're grateful that you know together um, we were able to give you you know this sabbatical and that yeah. you were able to take it. Yeah. And and so when you when you left, did you have did you have an agenda for it? Was there 
did you have specific goals? I knew you'd, I knew you'd planned some of your time out in terms yeah. of travel and things, but were, th were there specific goals that you were trying to achieve? Mm -hmm. And then like, did, did things change once, once you started in the sabbatical? Yeah. Um, well, I'm a, I'm an achiever slash performer kind of person. So I love having goals and going after those and figuring it out. And the problem with that is, is those things can become um, like a taskmaster to me. Right. So I had hopes of disconnecting, had hopes of reading a lot of books, being able to just rest, uh, study some. But I was very careful not to like order myself like you must do this, you know, or you have failed your sabbatical because I knew that that would blow everything. So I had, um, yeah, I had some kind of major goals that I would, uh, was hopeful for, but I also forced myself to be in the moment so that I wouldn't miss the moment. You know, I usually have my water cup up here that, that says be here now. And that's a, that's a good way to live. So I wanted to honor that as much as I could. But, um, you know, I knew that I wanted to be intentional as well. I wanted to know what was happening in here and in here. And so uh, the journal that I picked up, you know, I just saw it online and it was, it's designed for men who, you know, m most men can identify two emotions that, you know, they're, that, that's about it. We can come up with two emotions. <laughs> and so, uh, and generally men are not great at journaling. I, I like journaling. Um, but this, this gave me a, a focus uh, for especially that first month. It was like a daily prompt and fairly comprehensive about lots of different areas of life. And that was so helpful for me just to get in touch with every part of me um, that I needed to just to see where I was on sort of a health check. And, um, and I'll be sharing some of those tools, uh, particularly with the men's breakfast, which I hope to get going uh, soon because I just think it's so helpful. So that, that was there expressing gratitude every day. You were on my top three list every day just grateful for the time in the church that gave it to me. Every day, I thank God uh, for you, really. Um, my wife was up there number one, but you're solid number three after my children, okay? Still have my priorities. So, um, and I hope to get, uh, so our, part of our plan was to get out of Dodge uh, a lot at the onset because I knew I needed to be out of here, not seeing things that would remind me of our normal routine in life and all that. So we traveled a lot of, of May, um, going to some of our favorite places in California, a couple new places we hadn't been. Uh, and have you guys ever been to the state of California? <laughs> it's extraordinary, man. It is extraordinary. There is so much here. So we've known that. We've loved it here. And uh, so we, we explored, went to some great spaces, and that was wonderful uh, just for Lynn and I to go do that together and be tourists in our own state and uh, just have fun. Um, doing my journaling stuff all along, sorting stuff out, which is all good, and having her beside me to help sort those things out. Uh, and then June, um, it was total chill on purpose. So I don't know that we left our house much uh, in all of June, except to go see our daughter in, in the city and a little bit here and there, but we just wanted to sit tight and get into new rhythms, uh, which we did. So, you know, after two weeks of uh, kind of normal vacationing where you're eating without care <laughs> in May, we were like, 
huh, I don't know if we can sustain this. So, <laughs> so, so we adopted some healthy things in our lives, and, um, and that's been great just to get in a little better health uh, for myself and Lynn, too. Um, so June really afforded that and afforded me lots of time uh, to read. Uh, so I gobbled up lots of books um, through audiobooks and also written books. Some of those things were just really inspiring, and you're going you're gonna to be enjoying those, like it or not, uh, coming up, uh, because some of them are really fascinating. And sort of my whole thing here is if I'm feeling, you know, pumped about this or this is an amazing insight, I kind of want to share it with you. And so that's kind of my whole approach all the time. And there are some really profound things that I came across that I can't wait to talk about. And there were a couple times where we were having dinner with friends, you know, after I'd uh, written or read one of the books and somebody asked a question, well, what's going on? And I like got into like a 15, 20 minute description of everything. And Lynn's like, oh man, he's already ready to go back and teach. <laughs> so, and then July was, uh, I went to a great conference, uh, second time. Uh, for the conference, second time for me, uh, Open and Relational Theology Conference and the Grand Tetons, which was awesome. Uh, I'm going to be sharing uh, one of the lectures that I uh, heard with you uh, on video because it is so profound and so helpful on one of the biggest, toughest questions that people wrestle with uh, once they're in the faith. Uh, so I think you'll love it. I think it'll be super helpful. Uh, but it was great to stretch my mind around people like Andrew Davis, the guy you had twice in a row. The guy is brilliant. Kind of have a man crush on him, you know, <laughs> for his brain because he is so brilliant. And uh, so being around those people that are speaking that academic language um, all the time, you know, for that conference, that actually really helps me. It's sort of sharpening the sword a little bit. And so... Um, so that was really great. Uh, then we got back to see family, which we hadn't seen for over three years uh, in the Midwest. So if you have the opportunity to go back to Kansas in the summer, don't do that. It's, uh, <laughs> wow, it just made California so much better to come home to. Uh, so anyway, but we had a great time uh, seeing our family and reconnecting there before we came back and just kind of settled in before today. Yeah, so... So with this, you know, with, with the time that, and by the way, guys, if questions uh, percolate up for you uh, while we're having this discussion, we're, we'll have an open Q&A at, uh, at the end of this. So feel free to jot those down, and we'll raise hands and make sure that we get to them. Yeah, don't let me forget this, too. Oh, yeah. Um, uh, but so now, now that you've, you've kinda, you're kind of coming out of this sabbatical, and you have this kind of perspective looking back, yeah. um, especially as it pertains to kind of reaching that level of burnout and that kind of crisis moment. Mm -hmm. are, are there lessons that you have learned that you could maybe share with people mm -hmm. um, in case they're experiencing that in their lives or they see other friends experiencing it? Like what are, what mm -hmm. are things to watch out for that you mm -hmm. learned and, and maybe strategies that you picked up that you could prevent yeah. things like this happening for people? Yeah. Um, again, I think it's, specific to everybody's personality type and how you're wired and all that, it's going to be somewhat different. But I know for me as an achiever, doer, kind of performer type, um, really honoring rest and balance. Really, really. It, it, you know, I kind of have prided myself to a degree of keeping a level of balance, but I, I wasn't aware of um, some temptations uh, in my life that 
kind of kept me on call and here all the time. So, you know, that's one of the, that was one of the hardest things when I took a month off last year. Uh, the first two weeks, I had to spend literally therapy sessions on feeling guilty that I had to take the time off, which was stupid. Um, but we live in a culture that's, that's stupid like that. Uh, we live in a culture that likes to talk about health in all of its ways, including now, importantly, uh, emotional and mental health. So we're, we're creating this atmosphere where, you know, any magazine you look at, they're going to be talking about physical health and mental health and emotional health and all this stuff. We say it out loud, this is what we want. And yet in our culture, we are still so achievement performance oriented um, that we still celebrate workaholism and we applaud it, we lift it up as the model and that's destroying a lot of people's quality of life. And so, um, so that's one huge thing that was so helpful for me to let go of all my hats and I'm no longer anything but just Pete. <laughs> and to, as a description, kind of how I felt beforehand, um, you know what a stand-up paddleboard is? It's like a long surfboard, but it's flat and a little, little different. And you stand up on it and you paddle it around and this kind of thing. Well, they make some of these that are on the cheaper side out of, st out of styrofoam. Um, and they're, they're, they're adequate, and you can zip around on them pretty good. Um, how I was feeling before sabbatical was, imagine if all the parts, if, if somebody broke the stand-up paddleboard in a whole bunch of different pieces. And somehow you're able to sort of gather them around and hold on. So you're going to stay afloat. You're not going to die. And you may even be able to get somewhere because you're staying afloat. But you're, you're not really going to be able to be a stand-up paddleboard. You're not really going to stand on the thing or really navigate anywhere because it's fractured. And what sabbatical helped me do was get to a place where I became whole again. Uh, thank you, Bill. Thank Very you. kind of you. Uh, in fact, I have another kind of example of this. I have uh, some dear friends who have known for some time, and uh, they've known me for years. They've known my story and knew I was on sabbatical, and they, they got Lynn and I um, this lovely gift Thank you. And I want to describe it for you. Uh, as a representative, they got this for us uh, to, uh, to recognize what we'd been through. And they knew a little bit of what I'd been going through and how I was getting restored, really restored. And so this is uh, Kintsugi. This is an example of Kintsugi art. I'm just going to read their description. Kintsugi is a unique Japanese technique in which broken vessels are repaired using urushi, a Japanese lacquer. In Japan, imperfections such as cracks and stains on vessels are considered to create value. While the typical way of thinking is that broken vessels must be discarded, we believe upcycling gives new life to such vessels and enriches the lives of those who use them. By reviving the spirit of the craftsman who has poured his or her time into the piece, the vessels can be upcycled rather than being thrown away. This is what modern sustainable luxury is all about. We hope that you too see the beauty in kintsugi, a practice which conveys the Japanese spirit. 
So this is a, uh, a bowl, a sake bowl, um, that fell and broke during the earthquake, the tsunami that led to their nuclear problem in, uh, in Japan. Because that's part of the rule is they can't break the thing for you. It has to be broken and then brought, uh, brought to them. So this was kind of an artifact from an earthquake half a world away that, that then was acquired by this company uh, to piece back together. Uh, to make it, in some ways, probably stronger, more valuable, and I think more beautiful than it was before, and still can be used. Uh, and I feel like that is a, a great metaphor for my life. So I come back to you, I'm still able to do all the skill stuff and wear my hats, but I'm coming back to you in a, a level of wholeness and a depth of strength. Um, that I've never had before in my life because you, you can't. <laughs> you can only live your way to it. And so that's why I'm so deeply grateful for sabbatical as this was, this was no vacation in that kind of a sense. It was Sabbath rest which was required for me to become who I am and who I need to be for you and for everybody else in my world. So I don't know if that answers things, but um, so I think it does. Yeah. The rest matters. Rest matters. Yeah. Um, and as far as your uh, as far as your reentry goes, um, are there are there changes that you're looking to implement around mm -hmm. here? You know, things that uh, we as a congregation should be aware of things that you want to change or go back to or yeah well I can't wait to take my next sabbatical next month <laughs> <laughs> but other than that no uh, yeah you know what was um, we've been on a journey you and I it's been we and when I said our sabbatical my different correspondence with you it really was it was it's our sabbatical that we went through I may have been an obvious character in that, in my absence, but it was an our, us type thing. And, and our story at Crosswalk has been one of great unfolding and amazing and uh, against the odds um, because I, I have changed and transitioned over my entire career here and continue to learn, continue to ask questions, continue to grow, which I hope I will do till the day that I die, because uh, I, I love it. I love to learn new stuff and gain insight from different people and figure out how this stuff works. Um, and sometimes it feels a little shaky at times. Well, one of the things that is true of Crosswalk is we're at a place where we've, we've defined our ethos, our identity, pretty well. So I'm not seeing any radical shifts in terms of our ethos or, or our direction that way. I think I think it's taken us all this time to get to where we are. And where, what we are and where we are is very, very, very special. Um, we are only one of two or three churches in Napa Valley uh, that offers a different way of thinking about things, that allows space for the toughest questions, that is free in its style to be weird, like today. A very non-traditional worship service, but worshipful and community and God-honoring, I believe, nonetheless. 
And uh, at the ORTCON, when I was there, I asked one of the, the lecturers on a hike, um, is open and relational theology, process theology, open theism, all that, do um, you think it's ever going to dominate? Is it ever going to, you know, kind of be the leading voice? And pretty much everybody in the group is like, no, it's not. In fact, open and relational theology is only popular in the American Association of Religion and their conference. It's only popular and only looked to when it comes to science because it's the only branch of theology that can integrate and dance well and respect and honor science because it's not afraid of the tough questions and its hermeneutical approach to understanding scripture and theology affords it the kind of roominess uh, to look after answers and consider new insights. So if anything, um, what I've come back realizing is how important it is for us to be crosswalk who we are and to lean in to that identity and that ethos um, unapologetically, but also in a tighter way, which is not to in any way suggest that we spend any amount of time uh, disrespecting any other method or theology, but, but at the same time, we don't have to try to say it all or to to offer everything to everyone because that's not who we are. And so we're going to continue to offer this alternative way of looking at things that is deeply biblical, theologically sound, makes sense, works for people in life, and not, and not be anything but celebratory about it because it should be and it can be. And it's what the world needs. So, you know, to that end, you know, one of the first series I'm going to do, I got a a couple one-off weeks I want to do with you. Next week we're going to talk about Jesus' daddy issues because that, that'll be fun. Uh, <laughs> it's actually really important, really, really important. So we'll, we'll hear about that. I'm kind of air-quoting daddies because I'm not really talking about daddy, but I'm talking about daddy. And then, uh, and then we're going to take a couple weeks just to give a quick overview on the fullness of a different way of thinking about Jesus' mission in the world at his time. And one of the leading scholars <laughs> that actually wrote the book just flat out says Jesus failed. He failed the mission that he was on. So I'll talk to you about that and what does it mean for us going forward. And then I'm going to launch into a series of the last several weeks, many weeks, uh, called uh, Stay Christian with a question mark. Because there are a lot of people in the faith that are just ready to walk away from it because the questions that they have are not being addressed well. Or they're not even allowed to ask the question. And they think that there's only one answer to the question. And so... Asking the questions honestly and plainly, the hardest ones that are out there that are compelling people to walk away, and then spend some time talking about, well, how do we think about this and move forward, I think will be helpful. Um, not just for us to unpack them, but I think they're going to help you. I think they're going to help you in the greater world because you're going to come across people who grew up in church and haven't stepped foot in church, don't want to step foot in church. And when you ask why, this is going to help you have a reasonable conversation with them. Not, not to sell them on it, but so that you're at peace with it. And hopefully it'll be a strength faith, uh, strength, faith strengthener. In the new year, we're going to take a look inside and we're going to go to hell and to heaven <laughs> and spend some weeks doing that that will help us look at uh, some of the demons in our lives, quite literally. And I think it'll be a massive personal growth oriented type of series that's coming in January and some other things after that but that's what's coming uh, right now but really just doubling down on who we are and really loving that and celebrating that uh, and staying 
heavily um, people committed, you know. Um, that's why I really hope, like, our, like you and the others who have led uh, meditations, will, will agree to stay on and keep doing that for us because it's so important uh, for we to be we. And that's, that, that's the only way it can happen. And we still need more help in a range of areas. So hopefully we'll go forward better, stronger together. I mean, that, that's definitely been one of the things that has been a huge plus for me personally in the time that Pete's been away is seeing all these members of the congregation come up and step up and serve and lead. And I think that's been a really, really, really great thing for us all to see and experience together. Yeah. Um, it's time for, to open things up for questions. Like if, don't be shy, if you have a question, don't be shy about it because if you have one to ask, I'm sure someone else here is dying to ask the same question. Um, don't be afraid. Does anyone have a question? Repeat? Yeah, go ahead, Guy. Just for YouTube, the question was, how far in advance does Pete plan his programming? It sounds like he's already planned months out, so. Yeah, it, it varies. Uh, there are some people that, um, that like put a year calendar. Sometimes I do that, um, but I also hold on to it loosely uh, because I want to be adaptive to whatever God might be stirring in me uh, that might be new and fresh. That, and that's happened many times where I had an idea about, oh, I think I'm going to take us through this and then just something shifts, and it's like, I'm not going to do that. So I have a very solid idea about what's happening between now and Christmas. Pretty confident that's what we're going to do in January and some ideas beyond that. But I don't like to go too far because the world changes fast, and I want to be responsive to that. Uh, another so Keith's follow-up question, uh, high-low for Pete's uh, sabbatical, best and worst experiences. Oh, man. Well, the best, Careful. yeah, yeah, that's right. <laughs> uh, the best was just truly having that kind of extended level of rest where Lynn and I can just be human beings. Um, that was wonderful. Um, probably the worst was also kind of related to best because I'm glad, I'm glad it worked out this way. Um, there, there have been some whopper things happening in the world in the last few months and there was part of me that just you know wanted to speak into this and that you know and um, so the worst was kind of not being able to voice that because I was so careful uh, except for that once a month email I would send out um, I really had zero involvement unless it was absolutely necessary that I knew the passcode or I knew where the blueprints were or whatever uh, to do that. So the worst part was things are happening that I normally would speak into and people would probably want me to even if they disagreed with me. Uh, but it was also a good thing because I didn't and that was a good thing. Yeah. Any other questions? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, favorite favorite book from the sabbatical reading list. Sure, uh, you may teach on one. Yeah, of I'll uh, yeah I'll 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 print it out actually. I'll, I'll send it out in an email and kind of give some descriptions for you. Um, some of them are really um, nerdy, so I don't think everybody would you nerds that are out there you know who you are. Uh, you'll you'll love them. Um, 
There's an older gentleman, his name's John Cobb, uh, and he's nearing 100 years old. Um, and he's currently the foremost authority on Alfred North Whitehead, who was uh, sort of the genesis of uh, open theism, open philosophy, uh, from which open theology and process theology was born. Uh, and um, he wrote two books that are more personally reflective uh, than academic. He's got a massive um, list of academic books, but he wrote two that are really good. One of them is what I'm going to be teaching on next week called uh, um, Jesus' Abba, Abba's Daddy. So I want to talk about the insights that he brought, boil a full book down in a, a sermon. Uh, and then the other one was as he goes into the salvation of Jesus. And I, wanted, I want those two under our belt before we go anywhere else. Those are both highly readable. Uh, he, he, he gets nerdy, though. He's, I mean, he's, a, he's an incredible brain. So um, there, there's another one that I'll loosely talk about, but I won't purchase at the church because it's too hot to handle. But I will reference it, and then if you have the guts to read it and the stomach for it, you're welcome to read it. Uh, one uh, at the end of, uh, or in January, uh, is, is very popular, um, and yeah, I'll, I'll get that one for the church for everybody to read. It's very interesting take on some things that are, was helpful for me to overcome some personal growth obstacles, and I think it will be for you. Theologically framed. Good. Stuff to look forward to. Yeah. Anyone else? All right. Well, Pete, thanks so much, man. We're really Thank glad you. you're back. Thank you. All right. I can't believe that nobody asked, when are we going to eat already? Yeah. That's the real question we're wanting to ask. Yeah, thank you. Well, I could hear your thoughts, so that was one of my new tricks and gifts that I gained over sabbaticals. I can read minds now. Look forward to that. Yes, you can put a shout out, and then we'll uh, we'll have a closing prayer. Um, I just want to put a let you know who I dance with and who my kumu is. We have the best halal ever, anyway. Um, halal means school, in case you didn't know. So my halal is Nali Huluika Vekyu, and our kumu is Kumu Patrick Makuakani. He is, we are so blessed to have him because he's so renowned. Um, and usually every year in October, we, because we have a dance company, uh, so we've always had performances. But during COVID, of course, we didn't. So we are having one this year. And it's only one weekend, so there's only two shows. Um, I gave Dar a flyer to put up. Um, and if you want to see something really unique, and I promise you, you will not be disappointed, um, maybe you want to buy tickets to the show. The show's called Mahu, and it's going to be really unique. Okay, thank you. Thank Mahalo, you. I should Good say. Good plug. Thank you. Well, let's pray together, then we can uh, get some food in our bellies. Oh, yeah. Oh, no. Oh, okay. All right. That happened while we were here. Yeah, okay. I thought, saw the Losis go, and I was like, that's probably not a good sign. <laughs> Glad for the Losis to be here and to help. Uh, let's pray together. God, first we pray for um, the child uh, that, uh, got stung by a bee and is having reaction to that. And so we pray that 
they have uh, the kind of medical team helping him uh, right now. Uh, pray for the family and the stress and anxiety that causes and pray for the ongoing well-being uh, of the child. So just pray peace on them, pray healing, pray wellness, uh, be with them, give them strength that they don't know they have, uh, help them draw near to you, give them comfort and hope, give the medical team uh, wisdom, insight on the best treatment possible. And may your spirit itself work at every level of the child's life and presence and being uh, to bring about health, which you are always, always, always about. Uh, so we pray for that. Uh, God, I pray that um, as we conclude our time here in this service, that, that your spirit was at work and that we were open uh, to what you might be saying to us from parts of my story that were shared. I hope that maybe, God, you used that because uh, it's not about me. It's about you and us and what we're doing. But I pray, God, that maybe you were able to nudge somebody today uh, in a positive direction, a healthy direction, uh, to become more whole in some way. And if that's you today in this gathering, uh, can you identify it? Can you say, I, I think I've been nudged. And can you just ask yourself in a prayerful way, uh, God, what do you, why, and where, what are you asking of me to do? What do I need to do next? And to think about that. God, help us process that. Don't, don't have us leave any pearls behind. God, help, help us appreciate it. And now, God, we ask uh, that uh, our fellowship continue as we eat together, break bread together. We thank you for the team uh, that worked so hard to make this happen for us today and the collective effort that was. We ask you to bless them and give them uh, great love and strength. And we ask that you bless our time together, the food to our bodies. We're grateful for life. We're grateful for food and a planet that can give us food and people to create the food and et cetera, et cetera. We're just very grateful. So may we be filled with gratitude as we continue to be together. And to that end, let's pray the Lord's Prayer together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Thanks for coming, everybody. Let's eat. Thank you so much.